Hey everyone, welcome to the 101st edition of DF Direct Weekly. This is indeed our weekly show where we discuss the latest gaming and technology news. Let's get straight into it. First of all, the roll call. Um, fresh from describing his immensely detailed hair care regimen, it's Tom Morgan. I uh, watched it just this morning just for this uh, 101st episode, so it's a bit we're, of a treat. We're honoured. <laughs> and uh, of course, John Lillerman. Rich, that's a... Uh... I don't know, having Tom here, his hair is pretty distracting. It's just too darn good looking. Like keep yeah. looking over there like, oh man. So beautiful feelings. Beautiful locks. For sure. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, let's go straight into the first news topic. So this has been a very interesting uh, story that's rolled out this week. Essentially last week at the State of Play, Baldur's Gate 3 was revealed for PlayStation 5. And uh, the developer Larian followed that up by saying that there is no actual uh, console exclusivity with it. However, there is no Xbox version of the game uh, announced for release, dare I say it, in the here and now. Um, John, do you want to take up this story? Because it's quite involved and actually has some pretty profound implications, I think, for game development going forward. Yeah, so... I think their statement needs to be read very carefully. They, actually, they, should, we, should we read the statement? Yeah, so they actually say, we've had an Xbox version of Baldur's Gate 3 in development for quite some time, or some time. It said, we've run into some technical issues in developing the Xbox port that have stopped us feeling 100% confident in announcing it until we're certain we found the right solutions. Specifically, we've been unable to get split-screen co-op working to the same standards on both Xbox Series X and S which is a requirement for us to ship. There's no platform exclusivity preventing us from releasing BG3 and Xbox day and date, should that be a technical possibility. If and when we do announce further platforms, we want to make sure each version lives up to our standards and expectations. So they're basically saying they are working on an Xbox version. It's not officially announced as coming out, but it sounds like it is in production. And the current reason they haven't announced it seems to boil down to my, based on the statement, they can't get the split screen working on Xbox Series S. Yeah. Uh, mm. Which, this sort of opens an interesting can of worms because um, it's something that has been feared and hasn't come to pass yet, I would say. In the past, we've seen plenty of games release with missing features on Xbox Series S, but it's usually relegated to visual modes. So, for instance, you'll be missing... Ray tracing, like Doom Eternal got that patch. No ray tracing on Xbox Series S, but you get it on Series X. Um, this is the first time we've heard something specifically related to a gameplay feature that is not working well on the Series S. At least that's what I read into it, based on what they're saying here. Uh, which makes sense. Split screen is definitely demanding, right? You're rendering a, the same version of the world from a different perspective. Uh, it's it's a heavy feature. I can understand why they would be having issues here. My feeling, though, after reading this is, and I'd be curious to see what Series S owners think. I guess they the developer doesn't agree with this, but I feel like in cases like this, it should be acceptable to release a version for Xbox Series X with that feature and leave that feature behind on Series S. I'd rather see the Series X be properly utilized or at least get the game at all than to just skip the console because, you know, you, they can't get this feature running acceptably right. on a different machine, right? Okay, so um, what I think you're suggesting here is that this is 
the developer's choice. And the quote from the article says specifically, uh, we've been unable to get split screen to work to the same standard on both Xbox Series X and Xbox Series S, which is a requirement, a requirement for us to ship. So yeah, they're suggesting here it's not optional. It's got to be there. It's a requirement. So I think there's two ways you could look at this, right? Um, either, as you say, it's a requirement defined by the developer itself that this feature has got to be in there. And if it's not in there, they're not going to ship any Xbox version at all, which kind of sounds a bit far-fetched, possibly. Um, I don't know. Now, look, I could be wrong here, but I actually think this is something different. So um, I think it's actually a technical requirement laid out by the platform holder. Uh, in this case, Microsoft. Both Sony and Microsoft have a whole range of technical requirements in order for your machine, uh, in order for your game to be compliant with their hardware. Um, so yeah, typically both Microsoft and Sony, uh, when the enhanced consoles came along, there was a directive that yes, you could have different visual features on both machines, um, but uh, the gameplay features, there had to be parity between those two machines. One could not have an advantage over the other in that regard. So yeah, um, on Series S versus Series X, X typically has more performance modes. Um, it has ray tracing features, which um, it's not mandatory to bring that stuff over to Xbox Series S. You could ship without it. Um, but split screen co-op, I think, is something different, right? We're talking about a gameplay feature here. And I might be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure this is the case that with gameplay features, there does have to be parity between Xbox Series X and Xbox Series S. And I think that's on balance of probabilities more likely to be the issue here. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I, I initially read that as requirement for us to ship as like their own internal requirement, but I suppose yeah, it makes yeah. more sense that it's actually a Microsoft mandate, in which case... I do think it's something that should be reevaluated on a case by case basis. Because yeah, that, but that's the issue, right? You know, uh, let's say yeah. that uh, Larry and get you know a dispensation, <laughs> almost like a papal dispensation to actually uh, ship uh, Baldur's Gate three without this feature. Then suddenly there's going to be a whole bunch of developers who might be struggling with Series S features going to Microsoft and saying, "Hey." If you've let um, Baldur's Gate th go through without split screen, can you let us ship this game without this feature or that yeah, feature? Yeah, absolutely agreed. It's like the thin end of a wedge, isn't it? Like mm. the, uh, I mean, we've seen it before. I mean, not at the top of my head, we had, remember the uh, really arbitrary, on in the 360 days, they said you can only make an like a downloadable game for this size. I think Castlevania had to be within a, like, 100 megabytes and then one broke and then several other bro others were allowed to break over the course of the generation so i think it's very early in this generation for them to make an exception but they're gonna have to you're right this is like the early sign that things are not going to pan out particularly well for series s and we're already seeing it like in a load of games like how far series s has been held back i think tom well, I was going to say your point actually is a perfect example because there's XBLA games, when they remove that size requirement, they kind of got exponentially better. I think no, there's yes, not a single yeah. person that would argue that that limitation was beneficial for the games themselves. And yes, it did leave some people behind, probably a smaller fraction, but I think it was really important for the service. And I think it's important here to allow this. Uh, I think I would say, I mean, I'd be curious to see what the audience thinks, but I would rather have the game ship on Xbox than have it not ship because of this. 
and I'd rather the Series X, the more powerful machine, receives you know extra features if if available versus holding it back just because of Series S, right? Yeah, but thinking thinking about those technical requirements from the 360 year, but man, there were a bunch of them that were broken across the generation. Yeah. I seem to recall that at launch you had to be native 720p with 2x MSA. Not true. Which they well, broke they, that right away. Exactly. Yeah, the, the requirement <laughs> was there, but it was you know it was uh, removed pretty much from launch. You know, Project Gotham, etc., etc., etc. Then of course there was the fact that all games had to be able to run without a hard drive. Towards the end of the generation, that was uh, that was um, removed because you know we had games like I think GTA required a, a hard drive install. It did, so, yeah, yeah. So there's a whole bunch of uh, exceptions across the generation, and maybe this will be one of them. I don't know, um, but I can see why Microsoft would want to hold their ground in the here and now um, for this because you know they do want to have the Series X and S as being you know essentially companion systems similar to xbox one s and xbox one x back in the day where you can enhance one with visual features but they've all fundamentally got to have the same uh, gameplay feature set which actually was also a technical requirement for ps4 and pro um, but in those cases of course it was the base system that had the critical mass and I guess that's interesting as well, because, you know, as far as I'm aware, the split between S and X this generation is essentially 50-50. Uh, <laughs> Tom, what, 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 what is your solution to this? I mean, my solution would basically be for Microsoft to send in the advanced technology group uh, to, to help out Larry and to see whether they can resolve this issue. I think that is ultimately the, the solution. But also, uh, I think the way it's been worked out before was to start with series s as the, the sort of target and then scale up much in the same way as we'd use a last gen machine it's, it's not viable though is it in the world not, where not in the long term playstation 5 has got a you know a two to one advantage in terms of install base over um, the xbox consoles it's, yeah you know, that, that's going to be the target platform realistically isn't it yeah that would that would be the depressing uh, solution to the problem <laughs> i think that you know so far there's actually been quite a fine line being tread uh with series s and i think it's kind of worked the question is this transition away from visual features to gameplay features is that acceptable mm. i can i think microsoft probably think it isn't acceptable yeah. probably for good reason but, you know, in this case, a split screen mode could be removed from the game. And it, I'd see that as, well, I guess it is slightly different to like a 60 FPS mode or whatever. Yeah, I, I think I here's the question to ask yourselves, though. Would Series S owners rather have this game without split screen or not have this game at all? Right. If right. If, if ATG can't come in and help them solve it uh, and it just comes down to whether they get it or not, I think pretty much mm. everyone would rather just have the game. Right, then not yeah. have the game. Yeah, it's a shame, but yeah, yeah I exactly. agree. I agree. Well, we're tying ourselves up in knots about this one, yeah, yeah, which I just know. goes to show how difficult the issue it is. is. It's tough. The, the thing is, though, you know, I think we have to look at what Series S is, and I think what mm -hmm. it is is actually in a world of skyrocketing prices where the cost of gaming is shooting up all of the time. Series S is is pretty much the the, the singular outlier here to actually offer an affordable way into gaming for the current generation. Um, and I don't think, you know, I do think certain safeguards do need to be put in place. The question is where you draw the line. 
do you draw the line at 60 FPS and 120 FPS mode support? Or do you draw the line at split screen co-op? Where do you draw the line? I mean, Microsoft has drawn the line <laughs> and that's resulting in the situation that we have right here where uh, right now they can't announce a release date for Baldur's Gate 3 because of the Series S's, um, the issues they've had in getting split screen working on it. Man, this is this is a tricky one, right? Just to, you know, it is just remarkable, I think, how much gaming technology you're getting with the Series S for the money. And also something which I find really, really interesting and kind of bizarre. Go onto Facebook Marketplace, shop around on Facebook Marketplace. You can get a used Series S for like £100 now. Yeah, they're really cheap, yeah. <laughs> it's That is an incredible deal, you know. The used market for it is, is you know, prices are collapsing. So it's quite astonishing. But at the same time, I do think it is, you know, in these economically challenging times, it's the machine of the moment almost. But with that said, obviously, uh, PlayStation continues to sell spades of PlayStation 5s for, you know, whatever it is, $500. Crazy. Um, I'm going to have a final question here. John, where should... Microsoft draw the line in terms of feature parity between X and S. That's the key issue here, right? Yeah, that I and mean, that is difficult. I, I really think it depends on how important the feature is to the to the gameplay overall, right? Like you so, it's a, take... a case by case basis. You're my, you're Microsoft. You're enforcing these technical requirements. You think that um, the developer should have the leeway to go to Microsoft and say, "Hey, look, yes, okay." I mean, it again. Because you look at a game like It Takes Two, right? That is split screen. It needs to be split screen. It doesn't work without it. Uh, Bowder's Great 3, I'm going to go ahead and say that, at least based on the series history, there's, I don't see how it would drastically change the experience for almost everyone that's going to play it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's a single-player game primarily, unless I missed something and it's all about multiplayer now. I hope not. Uh, but... Yeah, I don't know. I just, I I understand why they're enforcing these things, and it and it does make sense to try to maintain that as much as possible. But you know, I think it's one of those things where they should exhaust every possibility to try to figure this out. And if they really truly can't get there, and Microsoft agrees based on their own aid that they could send to that studio, then I think an exception can be made. But it shouldn't be just like right away, early in development saying like, oh, no, we can't do this feature on Series S. Like, uh, I guess there has to be some development effort put in, even if that, I guess, that could also be a waste of money. I, I don't know. It's It really is difficult. I understand why it's, why it's a sore spot right now for them. Tom, where do you draw the line? Where should Microsoft draw the line? It is, like much as John said, it's down to the nature of the game. If it's a, you know, a competitive game, if it's a, a competitive game, you want a certain feature set. If you, it's a single-player orientated game like this, I think you just focus on the campaign. You deliver the campaign as is, sans split-screen, if need be, for Series S, uh, and so be it. But, you know, I, I think I would, I would kind of just accept it as is, if they really can't do it. But then again, I've seen incredible things done. You know, it, we've seen incredible games come to Switch, which is a very CPU limited system, with you know a certain type of concerted engineering effort. I believe a lot of things are possible. So yeah, fingers crossed for this one. Mm, okay, 
that was quite an involved discussion there, but it really does have profound implications for the generation, I think, if you actually start to remove gameplay features from one of the three consoles. Uh, I don't envy the position Microsoft is in here. I mean, on the face of it, a split screen mode could conceivably, you know, maybe let that pass. But if you do that, I do worry that, you know, the amount of uh, appeals from developers about stuff that, you know, they're having trouble with could actually have more serious long-term implications for the Series S, which is, as I said, a machine I think we need. Um, but I guess we'll be following that one as as the story develops or doesn't develop. Uh, but in the meantime, let's move on to the next news topic. Uh, so this week, um, NVIDIA released a widely anticipated feature, which is the ability to use your RTX graphics card, currently RTX 3000 or 4000, um, to implement on-the-fly AI upscaling to videos that sit within the Edge and Chrome browsers. It's called um, RTX Video Enhancement Super Resolution. Um, yeah, I've installed it. It's uh, available as an option that you in, uh, that you select within the control panel. There seems to be four quality modes here, and I believe there was a requirement or a suggestion that to use the top quality uh, level four enhancement, you'd need a 70 glass GPU or better. Crikey. Yeah, it seems to have quite a requirement, as it were. Um, level four. Level four. I like this. Level Something four video. Right. Yeah, sort of Blade Runner level yeah. four video enhancement. <laughs> um, John, now yeah. we were really eagerly anticipating this, but I think it's fair to say that the actual <laughs> quality is possibly not the game changer that we were expecting. Uh, quite the opposite, at least based on some of the examples I've seen so far, where it actually seems to be uh, reducing the level of detail in a scene. Uh, it doesn't look great to my eyes at this point. So I don't know. I mean, I don't really see any use for it at this point, although it does seem to vary a lot with content. Some sort of sometimes filmed content seemed to look okay, but then like you tried it on the DF Direct and it did not look very yeah, good at all, it, right? It looks very smudged. Yeah. That sort of AI smudgy look to it, which is mm. overly filtered and aggressive. It's to me what I've seen so far, it looks like the type of thing that you would enable on a TV buried deep yes. in the menu, like picture exactly. enhance extreme mode. You turn it to on and now everything looks bad, <laughs> but <laughs> it's being sold as a feature. Like that's kind of the impression I got from it. It's funny. The first thing I tested, and it was actually brought up by the supporters as well, uh, is the classic Need for Speed uh, comparison between PlayStation 3 and PlayStation Vita, which was uh, mastered at 720p, of course, because it was the 720p generation. Um, and it it does something. It seems to do uh, some uh, macro block suppression. But, you know, if you watched one after the other, or indeed side by side, you probably wouldn't really be able to tell much of a, of a difference. And this was on full level four um, processing. Level four. Level four processing. Enhance, enhance. Um, <laughs> it, it just didn't enhance, really. Um, so I guess the applications of it probably going to be quite limited. I also found, um, you know, I was watching a video, YouTube video at two times speed. And uh, I was also exporting a video from uh, Adobe Premiere, and there was a contention for GPU resources there, which 
saw the video running more choppily. So there's a bunch of limitations here. I don't think the case has quite been made for the quality of it. Um, but a lot of people want to know what we think about it. I think you've got to really test it across a broad range of content. You've got to figure out what these four quality levels were. I mean, I just went straight to level four, right? Because, you know, the Spinal yeah, Tap yeah. equivalent of going to 11. Um, but it still didn't seem to, to be a game-changing uh, proposition. But the other thing I think I've noted somewhere is that the actual effectiveness of it depends on the size of the um, of the video window. If the video window within your browser is too small, then um, it just doesn't engage at all. And why should it? You know, because it's it's probably going to be super sampled anyway, um, depending on the size of the window. But I was running it in full four 4K. Right, I tested a bunch of content from seven twenty p up to 4K. It doesn't do anything on anything less than 360p. So you've got to start at 360p content to see anything happening at all, which unfortunately rolled out the um, ruled out the original Chad Warden video. Oh, John. dang it! That's what, what a missed what opportunity. We for, yeah, very frustrating. I think the the opportunity there to you know upscale and improve really low resolution content like that 360p is probably one of the the key things I'd want out of it. So that's a bit of a shame, but um, I, yeah. So this this seems to have a similar problem to a lot of other of the uh, NVIDIA's tools for presenting content, such as, you know, the voice uh, right. stuff Great and idea the eyeball stuff and the, you know, mm. the NVIDIA camera stuff. All, all of those features are interesting on the face of it. And if you actually test them in certain scenarios, they work extremely well. The problem I found thus far is that you can't count on them. They will either not work well, they'll reduce the quality, they'll cause glitches. You can't trust it. We've certainly experienced a lot of that with RTX Voice uh, when trying that because it does actually do a fantastic job with noise removal. It's really good, except when it's not. And that's yeah. the problem is like when you're recording, like say DF Direct Weekly or like this, if we would use it. Sometimes it works great, but other times it causes weird popping, it causes voice dropouts, it causes noise. And there's no way to predict how or why it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. And as a result, you can't rely on it at all. And that is yep. fundamentally the problem with all of this stuff. I mean, I guess with this video AI up upscaler, it's not so much about creating content. It's more about consuming content. But even then, if you just enable this all the time, you don't know whether it's actually going to be helping or hurting for video. And that uh, is very frustrating. I think in terms of these AI tools, uh, perhaps... NVIDIA has almost set itself up uh, for these fails because DLSS is so good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Everything is going to be compared to DLSS, even DLSS 3, right? And, um, you know, that was a game-changing piece of technology, which, you know, basically required AMD and um, Intel to, to produce their own competing technologies. Uh, it was that good. So when something comes along which is good in some scenarios, but not in others, doesn't have that same game-changing effect. There's an inevitable sort of level of disappointment to it. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, I have to admit, based on their preview materials that went out, it seemed to be doing a lot more than what it does in my <laughs> in my own testing. Yeah, um, that initial I, trailer looked incredible. Really yeah, incredible. Well, it looks useful and interesting, I'd, I'd yeah. say. And, um, but I'm not, you know... I've, I'm looking at my control panel now and uh, the RTX video enhancement setting is off. 
and it will probably remain there for the until there's like changes or I find out where it actually makes a difference. I'd find it on D- Deep Space Nine content from uh, Netflix and YouTube uh, because there is no HD version of that, and the Netflix versions are really really crappy. Uh, but it, you know, you basically removed mm. some uh, macro blocking, but it didn't really improve my enjoyment of the show in any way, which is kind of the point, right? Mm-hmm. 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 Okay. Well, I guess we've ruled that one out then. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to the next news topic. Um, so, John, you talked about this last week in our state of play uh, commentary, where one of the shining lights of the uh, of, of the whole show was a small game from the developers of Tetris Effect and uh, Res Infinite. I guess they've come out with um, a new game. Uh, there's a demo out now, Humanity. The demo means we've been able to go hands-on. And I'd quite like your impressions on this. I think we've all played it. It is the Lemmings game that we've been waiting for, the 3D <laughs> Lemmings game we've been waiting for, right? Kind of, yeah. So it has ele- elements of Lemmings, for sure. The idea being that you're guiding sort of like, you know, entities around through a stage to reach the end point. But it also reminded me of a Choo Choo Rocket in a good way. Because like in Choo Choo Rocket, the I believe the mice are they basically are infinite. I think it's either like a timer. I, I forget what the what the objective is in terms of winning that each one. But the humans in this game keep flowing almost like water, right? There's not a finite number of them like in Lemmings, where you have to rescue, you know, X number of the total. So here it's more about figuring out how do you get that stream of people from one end of the level to the other. And you control like a small dog character in a platformer-like way. And similar to Choo Choo Rocket, you're dropping arrows on the ground to direct the traffic. uh, While also gaining additional powers such as that you can apply to them. Like if you place certain pads, you can uh, reduce the gravity of the humans or cause them to do like sort of a super jump. You can also dive into them and like flow through them yourself to get up into different areas. Uh, It's really slick idea and it works really well and it's also kind of visually neat it's this very like you know sort of uh simplistic design i would say but like with the tight style and like seeing all those moving people all casting shadows and individually animating it's a neat tech demo-y looking thing uh but i i tried it in psvr2 mode which is both amazing and not perfect at the same time so basically Unlike the 2D mode, it becomes like this little like floating diorama and there's two modes, one that kind of moves the camera as you move the character around, which I think might cause motion sickness for some people. And then there's another where it sort of stays still and uh, you can basically walk around the tower in a 3D space, like a room scale kind of thing. And that felt amazing to me, I thought, controlling the little creature, little dog entity while maneuvering these humans. The problem with the PSVR 2 mode is right now it's like weirdly low resolution, like very chunky visuals in VR, and it's only 60 FPS. Uh, My guess is that all those individual humans are eating up some resources, probably heavy on compute or something like that, that is potentially limiting what the game can do in VR. Because other than that, it's fairly simple visually. But Does it not have the time warp to one uh, I think it does for the head. It's just that mm-hmm. when you're moving, you know, everything else moving in the scene, it's just, just 60, which is, you know, not uncommon for it. But yeah, like 
it's a neat thing. It's got a cool presentation. It's very promising, and I'm eager to play more. Uh, did you play it, Tom? Yeah, actually, I had a, a go with about four or five levels. Oh, uh, nice. Just, it, it was captivating, really, is I like simple but perfectly executed ideas. And I think coming off Tetris Effect kind of, uh, you know, it, it, it really carried on that momentum. But this is a, a great idea. I definitely saw the parallels with Choo Choo Rocket right yeah. away, John. <laughs> That's good. A bit more of a, yeah, a slightly darker version of it because there's people involved. Yeah, yeah. But it's, <laughs> it ran beautifully. I was playing on PS5. And um, what I really loved at the end of a level, especially a big sort of uh, uh, stage, you almost end up with a, a beautiful pattern of you know, humans yes. kind of flowing awesome. over one and then like an arc over a bridge and then going under. It's like a like a highway. It's, a, yeah, really impressive. Not stunning, much to say yeah. on this one, but very stunning. Well, it is slightly sinister to see these people just jumping off into the into oblivion en masse. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious to see where they... Because the trailer showed stuff like uh, facing off against low-polygon monochrome figures that were also like similarly flowing, so I'm curious to see where they go with all that. But that's kind of the thing with Mizuguchi games, is they kind of have this surreal uh, synesthesia, of course, kind of design, and this does carry that. It's not as... Uh, quote-unquote groovy as those games it's not focused on sort of pop music and that kind of thing it's much more dreamlike but the atmosphere is definitely captivating and it feels pretty original and it's the first time at least i've personally played a game that's lemmings ish like but in 3d because you know lemmings 3d exists or 3d lemmings however you want to call it and it's pretty bad mainly because the controls are it makes it almost unplayable it's extremely complex in terms of camera movement and i actually think having a finite number of characters in a 3d game like this would be very annoying just as it was in 3d lemmings because it takes longer to orient yourself and figure out where to place the next thing whereas you can instantly figure that out in 2d in the original lemmings games so uh, i think this more like Choo Choo Rocket style design works better here. But yeah. Okay, good stuff. Well, we look forward to seeing more on this game. And uh, with the absence of Alex, John, um, kudos for getting in a quote unquote. Oh, yes, it's <laughs> true. I had to do that. <laughs> um, let's move on to the next news topic. So a new PRB emerged this week for Final Fantasy 16. A bunch of press, uh, not including us, were invited to take a look at the game of, well, Final Fantasy 16, if we're talking specifically. And um, yeah, I mean, this is looking fantastic. And um, it's been a number of uh, news stories surrounding the game as well. One of which is that although the game has a six-month exclusivity window for PlayStation 5, uh, we shouldn't be expecting to see a PC version anytime soon. Uh, but let's first of all talk about the footage that was uh, that was disseminated by Square Enix to various outlets. Um, Tom, thoughts? Well, I'm very excited for this one. It's it's kind of like um, also a complete redesign of what Final Fantasy is, and that has been to an extent what Final Fantasy yeah. is. My mindset has been with every release, I guess past nine. You know, it's been very different from that point onwards. Um, very excited. I'm, I I understand that one of the key developers behind Devil May Cry is behind the combat, yep. and uh, you can see that reflected in just how. You know, varied the moveset is, how like it, it sort of tactile everything is. So very excited. I'm 
yeah, I'm sure there's lots of people who wanted to go back to turn-based, but no, it's this is a, a good move, I yeah, think, absolutely. a good forward-thinking move. And um, I guess the other point is that there seems to be some traces of, I'm sure you noticed this, John, like influences from Dark Souls and kind of in, at least in the sort of area we have footage of earlier on, it's sort of like a, a classic Dark Souls-style castle area. Uh, I wonder if there's some influence there, like Squaresoft decided this is the way things are going in the RPG space. So let's take this this yeah, way. It, it's hard to say, uh, you know, how they were influenced. I, I can definitely see it's taking a different tone compared to most, but not all Final Fantasy games. Uh, yeah, for sure. It's it's a little Matsuno, I guess, but a little darker than that. Uh, mm. You know, Final Fantasy fourteen itself, which uh, has connections to this game in terms of development staff also is generally more serious though a little goofier only because of the fact that it's multiplayer and you know <laughs> but yeah i really like the look of this it's come a long way since that initial trailer the visuals look fantastic you know characters materials it's all extremely well done the lighting is superb uh this is light years beyond forespoken in terms of visual quality so I don't think they've ever actually confirmed specifically which engine or like which technology they're using. There's just been a suggestion that it's derived from some of the work done on FF14 and then sort of spun out into its own thing from there. It does not seem to use Luminous. It doesn't use Unreal, nothing like that, uh, which is interesting because it does have kind of its own look. And the thing it reminded me the most of visually, actually, though, is uh, the Demon Souls remake right in terms of just the environment detail and you know how how dense everything is like even though it's just sort of a stony castle area like you're not seeing many flat surfaces right it's all this like cobbled creaky looking old stonework everywhere and gravel and everything is like really detailed and undulated it's it's very nice and it, it feels great uh, but, you know, based on other trailers, we also know it's not all going to be set in this sort of dark, dungeon-y area either, right? There are other spaces within the world. I really have to wonder if there is some influence from God of War 2018 in here as well. Because, you know, the the character action with sort of your companion that you're commanding around kind of reminded me a little bit of that. Though, obviously, uh, the storytelling here looks very different. And uh, in a good way. So I'm very curious to see where that goes as well. But I'm extremely excited for this because, uh, you know, it, it it looks like it's really going to attempt to bring back mainline Final Fantasy again in a new, interesting way, which is what I always hoped from Final Fantasy with each new release. Yeah, I'm reading these comments about the PC version from uh, Yoshida. And um, wow, man, this is a this is a long comment about why we shouldn't expect to see a PC <laughs> version anytime soon. In fact, I'm going to read it. First of all, it is true that Final Fantasy 16 is a six-month limited-time exclusive on the PlayStation 5 platform. However, it's a completely different story that the PC version will be released in half a year. I will make it clear, but the PC version will not come out in half a year. This is because we spent a lot of time and money optimizing the PS5 platform to deliver the best gaming experience. Of course, I would like to release a PC version at some point so that everyone can play as many games as possible. However, even if we start optimizing the PC version after the PS5 version comes out, we won't be able to optimize it in half a year. So it won't come out in a short span of half a year. Oof. 
I would like to mm. release it eventually, and I think I will, but I am not at the stage <laughs> where I can say when. No, uh, so he continues. It... To, yeah, let, let him finish, John. <laughs> okay. First of all, first of all, I would be happy if you could play the PS5 version, which I made with the thought of being the best game in the world. If the PC version comes out in half a year, I can quit the company. Ha <laughs> ha. Please don't say I won't buy the PS5 version because the PC version will be released in half a year. Um, this is actually a really <laughs> interesting comment, I think, John. First yeah. of all, um, bearing in mind what happened with Final Fantasy VII Remake on PC, um, there's there's the sense here that you know there's a certain bar of quality and level of optimization that is required before he's going to ship the game. That means, first of all, that the focus is firmly on PlayStation Five, which is you know as it should be. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the hint that you know, come on, if we're going to get a PC version out, it can't be rushed. It's it's the right way forward, isn't it? I agree, and I think you know Final Fantasy fourteen itself has uh, a large install base on PC as well, right? And Yoshida is involved with that. I think in this case they really want to avoid a bad PC release. And it sounds like he's pretty much confirming that there will be one at some point. Just we don't know when. Just, just and, don't think it's no, going to appear in six months. Yeah, the way he kept reiterating that makes it seem like he's been harassed constantly on social media or on a message board somewhere about this. And he's just sick and tired of reading it and had to just drive the stake in. Like, guys, no, it is not coming in half a year. Stop it. <laughs> So uh, I I did appreciate that sort of tone he has there, but yeah, I mean, that's I for all I'm I'm sure it's coming to PC at some point, and it'll probably be, and I I really think and I hope that Square has learned some lessons from other recent PC releases. Well, the Final Fantasy VII remake was pretty poor, but the ways it is poor, I would say if you look at it, is actually pretty consistent with most Unreal Engine games. So it's kind of hard to blame them entirely. Like we've started to see some progress made on that front, but uh, but, this but there is... was never, as far as I know, John, there was never a fix. I mean, you know, we gave um, Callisto Protocol a hard time, but you know they, they put they in a shader it. compilation step within you know days. Yeah, of... yeah, yeah. But I so... there's there's been plenty of Unreal games that haven't been fixed, right? Like it's not Absolutely. like everybody has solved these problems. Forspoken, I would say, had a better PC version, but with some weirdness, like the uh, certain features not working correctly. But it was definitely, I would say, a much better place to play than on PlayStation 5. But the key I get from this footage here versus any of the Forspoken footage pre-release is that this is running very consistently. And it's 30 frames per second, but with very nice motion blur. It's very stable. There's no frame time inconsistencies everything just looks exactly as it should so you really get the impression that they're polishing the heck out of this game and you know there's rumors out there that the game's basically been done since like last summer or something like that right so if any of that is true and i don't know uh one way or another then that suggests that perhaps they've had a long time to just polish the heck out of this version which is what it really needs like if this comes out day one on a disc even uh, just polished, no patches necessary. That will be a huge win, I think. Well, I'm reading this comment from uh, Yoshida on uh, Polygon, uh, which which made me chuckle. I know Final Fantasy games can get delayed at the last minute, oh. but unless a meteor falls on Japan, <laughs> there will be no delay. Gosh, he's, he's amazing, Yoshida. <laughs> what a personality. I love this guy. <laughs> 
thing is, no. you know, I don't know. Is I it, really do hope at this point that a meteor doesn't fall on Japan, I hope or well. any point for that matter. There's yeah. always a chance, but let's, yes, let's just hope not. And yeah. so it sounds great. I mean, uh, uh, personally speaking, the, the whole idea that this game is done and dusted mostly, and they're just on the home stretch, <laughs> fills me with a lot of confidence for a good release. You know, we've had a couple of releases recently which really needed day one patches, and maybe this one will as well, but. It's. It seems like they they're pretty confident about it. Also, being a PS5 focused development project, gosh, that fills me with so much confidence as well. How often do you see the you know a game made for just one console, one platform, uh, without any other in sight? It's, uh, Man, it's quite it, uh, on this scale of this. It uh, used to be the well. norm, though. That's the thing. Like that, there was a time when that was all the big games yeah. were like that, right? And then just in recent years. I mean, in the last decade or more, that kind of has dried up. We just don't see it very often, especially from third parties. And I get that a lot of that comes down to just the cost of development is so high. Like, unless you have some kind of special deal with the first party publisher, uh, it doesn't make sense to limit yourself to one platform. So Exactly. Sorry, I'm still chuckling about that comment. Unless a meteor <laughs> falls on Japan, there will be no delay. I just like the way that, you know, a game delay re would require an extinction level event <laughs> to, 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 to I, not make this launch. I just love how, how open he is about it. Like a lot of, you know, he, he's just throwing stuff out there. Some of the things he says, while I'm sure they were run through the PR pass, they feel almost like a comment that was done without the PR pass. You know what I mean? Mm. It's, it's just, it's very bold and like you kind of head turning where you're like, wow, really? Okay, that's cool. It's very confident to say things like that. Absolutely. Uh, let's move on to our final news topic of the week. And it's a topic that is closely related, actually, because um, uh, Square Enix has announced that Luminous Productions, who have recently uh, produced Forspoken, uh, they're going to be merging into Square Enix, uh, which is an interesting comment to make, because as I understand it, the developer is already situated within Square Enix. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. John, what do you make of this? Uh, it sounds to me like they're uh, unhappy with the performance of Forspoken and have decided, you know what, maybe we don't need to be doing this anymore. And I assume that they'll pull them back in. <clears throat> I, Luminous may never be used again. The people working on that team will likely go elsewhere. Like, I just, I think it's just like, well, we don't want to let these people go, which is good. And there's a lot of talent in there, but let's bring them back into the company and uh, figure out what's next. Uh, hmm. so, I took it that way as well. Uh, yeah. That is sort of what they call them in the business space, uh, sundowning, uh, yeah, a like a bit. venture. Uh, but it's in the nicest way. I agree. It's like, yeah. they, I mean, it's in the name of the production company. The Luminous Engine was tied to what they're about. And I don't think that's the way forward anymore for Square Enix. It's unreal, mostly from, from here onwards, with the exception of Final Fantasy 16, I guess. But it's a, yeah, it's a shame because, you know, they had a stab at something, a unique IP. It didn't pan out metacritically. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like it's set the world on fire. Um, they're making a DLC is what we're reading here. And that seems to be their last sort of uh, push DLC. for the game. Yeah. 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 It's a shame because the Luminous engine seemed so promising in Final Fantasy fifteen. It was really beautiful yeah. at the time. I think Forspoken still looks significantly worse than Final Fantasy fifteen. 
Uh, a lot of the decisions they made with the visuals are absolutely puzzling. And I feel like to get Luminous back on track to compete with any of the other major engines would require far more development time and money than they are willing to put into it, and for good reason. So I'm sad to see, potentially, I mean, it's not confirmed, let's not get ahead of ourselves here, but potentially this could be the end of another unique engine fork, or another engine thing, right? Completely. So, and Unreal's domination continues. Well, that assumes that, yeah, I mean, obviously Square Enix do use uh, Unreal Engine 4. However, Final Fantasy 16 doesn't. So Yeah, but the next Kingdom Hearts uses the UE5 and, uh, you know... Final Fantasy VII Remake Part Two, I forget the name now, the Rebirth or something. Uh, that is Unreal Engine, of course. So it seems to be their main focus for now, and it's fine. Yeah, but... for sure. And a lot of their uh, Switch JRPGs, like Octopath, seems to be Unreal as well. So it scales up and down. I would say that the team that's working on Final Fantasy sixteen plus those involved in Final Fantasy fourteen will probably continue to utilize their own technology based on what we're seeing here. And it seems like good technology, so it's great. I mean, building something like FF14 in Unreal seems possible, but I would imagine it's quite difficult. Uh, I mean, how many really successful big MMOs have we seen with Unreal Engine? Can you guys think of any? No, not off the top of my head. <laughs> then again, you know, how many really successful MMOs are left? Yeah, yeah, yeah. not many, but... <laughs> yeah, very <laughs> slim true. pickings there. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I just think the concept that Final Fantasy XIV has achieved the success it has has been phenomenal. I think it's quite, you know, it's a massive success story. Yeah, uh, it's truly awesome. Never saw it coming based on the troubled beginnings, but it's come into its own. Yeah, it's got to be one of the biggest comeback stories in uh, the industry's history, I think. But, I mean, to be a juggernaut like WoW, it's just, you know. I mean, that's, what, uh, that's, that's why you, Yoshida's become a bit of a rock star, I'd say. Yeah, I mean that was probably one of the biggest saves in the history of the company. That's an incredible <laughs> feat to to get that back on track. And right now, it's like a real feather in their cap. It's like yeah. the biggest thing they've got. It's literally the only MMO RPG I've ever considered playing. I'm yeah, still but you're not it. playing it though. I, I'm not playing it because of the time <laughs> requirements. But it's the only one I ever looked at and say, you know, I could see myself playing that. Whereas Same when I look here. at WoW, I'm yeah. like, yeah, this looks dumb. I will never play this game. And I have never played WoW. And I think it's... I don't want to get myself in trouble with the fans, but let's just say no, that's but, not no. the type of game for me. I mean, wow. we're, both, we're both big Final Fantasy fans, right? And 14 yeah. is like the one... I am hope like personally I, holding off on because I you know it's an MMO it's that style but yeah. I know I know there's quality in there. I feel like I'm missing out on something, right? Like Same. There's, there's something yeah. there that looks really interesting. The music's amazing. Like there's a lot of good stuff in there. Just man, the time requirement to see it all. Maybe we could set us like a month block off and just say let's just go for it. <laughs> I'm sure Rich would love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is a uh, yeah an amazing business case you laid out there. A month of Final Fantasy fourteen. Yeah. Every video is Final Fantasy fourteen. Wow, it's gonna be it's gonna be numbers in that big numbers. <laughs> okay, so that is the news for the week. Let's crack on with supporter Q and A. This is the area of the show where every week we uh, ask our supporters to come up with a big bunch of questions for us to answer, and we choose the best or rather the ones that we're actually equipped to answer because there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. Um, we're going to start with this question from Tony Escobar. What are your thoughts on the Pokemon and Chrono Cross patches? Do they save the games? Uh, so these are two titles which had contentious beginnings 
and um, I'll tackle the, the the Pokemon stuff because Oliver has actually, you know, he did the the, the review, wasn't too happy with the technical performance of the game, and uh, you know. This, along with other titles, he's been keeping an eye on them, right? Uh, but he says that the new Pokemon patch doesn't do anything <laughs> for the performance. Uh, mm. The best, the best way to improve performance is seemingly to restart the game every hour. Um, wow, wow! Which is the same as launch. So yeah, there's no real progress to uh, to talk about there. Uh, Chronocross, has anybody looked at the patch for that recently? There's a has it changed the game or improved I it in any way? Haven't had a chance, honestly. Uh, I mean, the state we left it in was pretty dire, worse than the PlayStation One performance on a PS5. So that's yeah, that where we left great, it. Was it? It was. I think uh, it, it was because it was using a form of emulation. It's fairly safe to say it was just uh, emulating the original frame rate cap. Uh, and so you got like 15 frames per second at points. But why it was even lower on the PS5 in the first place after that is kind of beyond me. Um, so I like the, the team must have just seen the coverage. And well, I'm amazed they released it in that state in the first place. But uh, yeah, I think... Uh, okay. Speaks so, so I think to answer Tony's question, we haven't looked at Chrono Cross, but po Pokemon. I have been browsing footage of Chrono Cross, and it looks significantly better. In fact, a lot of the footage I've seen shows the battles are even updating at sixty frames per second now. Wow! Which I did not expect. <laughs> so really, war, please. It seems yeah. like they've done some serious work on this thing. It looks a lot okay. better. So this, I'm actually. What do you reckon? Curious to check it out now, just to see like. Is this really like that different? Because it looks like they've yeah. done a ton of work on it. Now so. I've, I've got a couple of thoughts uh, on like, the go-to uh, problem with emulating Chrono Cross at higher frame rates has been related to affecting the game logic. Right. Uh, there's been a couple of attempts at it, and it uh, affected the animations in some way. So maybe they've found a workaround for that, and that's everything's great. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm yeah. curious because uh, looking at footage here it looks like the overworld stuff on the map is still just capped at 30 frames per second Interesting. so you know while the battles so the thing about the battles in chrono cross if you remember if you played it on an original playstation yeah i feel like at times when it would fade into the battle screen you'd actually see pockets of it hitting 60 fps for like you know a couple seconds before it started you know you're right before yeah. it started drawing the uh the characters so yeah. like it felt like the battles were probably unlocked on real PS1 hardware and they just couldn't actually get up to 60 except for when it's completely empty, right? So I think that was kind of possibly baked in for the battle stuff. It's for, uh, quite likely. Also another twist with Chrono Cross is uniquely that it's got a uh, fast forward and slow down uh, feature uh, where you can kind of speed up your movement to get from A to B and speed up the battles. So Oh, I wonder if that maybe I wonder if that actually has any influence yeah, me too. I, I need to look. I need to look at it closely myself. This is all this tentative, based on watching videos of people. Because I did not purchase this because uh, of the original state of the release. So, um, but I am curious now to see more. Okay, well, let's move on to the next question. This one from Padster, pretty quick one, I think. Uh, Hi, DF team. Is there a searchable database or spreadsheet for Alex's optimized settings he lays out in his tech analysis of games? It would be very useful to be able to quickly find the optimized settings for older games without having to re-watch the whole video. And Padster, you're entirely right. And it's something we've talked about with our friends at Eurogamer uh, to, to actually figure out a mechanism for making this happen. Um, 
I think we can do something on our side to to make it easier. Um, but the short answer is no, there isn't. <laughs> but we're hoping to change that situation soon. It's difficult because obviously um, it's not something you can you know specifically template because every game has different settings. And um, yes, yeah, it's, it's it's a bit tricky, but it's certainly something we want to do. Um, the issue being that, you know, with each passing month, there's a whole bunch of new games where we have optimized settings. And so the task of going back and databasing all of the prior ones becomes larger. But it's something we do want to address. We'll move on to the next question. This one from Big Man Upstairs. Oh, yeah. Uh, Hello, DFers! Exclamation point. With so many games coming in hot that require a large patch on launch day, plus subsequent patches over the weeks that follow the release, do you think the consumer trust is slowly eroding away and that we'll start to see more gamers holding off with day one purchases? Interesting question, right, John? Because, um, man, there have been a bunch of games that just <sighs> have shipped with issues. I guess if there is a day one patch that actually does the bulk of the job in addressing issues, I don't think it's going to shift the needle in terms of uh, consumer trust because... They never get to see the day zero experience or, mm. or you know, that's that's the bottom line. Um, John, thoughts? I think they're getting, consumers are getting used to this stuff. And I think as yes. you say, if things are fixed like at launch or within a day or so, I think most people are fine with that. I don't like it because it usually means that, you know, you're missing something on the disc, right? But it's not actually as wide of a problem as you think. It's just happened with some pretty high profile releases. The problem is more that when you have a game that ships with issues and then it takes a long time to fix those issues, whether that's weeks or even months, that kind of thing does erode some trust and it creates sort of this negative uh, feeling around the company. And I think that does impact consumers and they become more aware of that problem. I still think, man, Nintendo's approach to releasing games is, is so interesting to me because usually when a Nintendo game is released, not only is it very solid at launch, but as everyone knows, they don't really drop prices very often or buy very much. And so they've sort of trained, you know, Nintendo fans to be like, well, I may as well just get this right away because I won't see a price drop for years, if at all. So then they go for it. Whereas with other modern games, I think it's created this situation where consumers see, oh, Game X released and it's really buggy. I may as well just wait for a sale. You know what I mean? And then by the time it's on sale, I'll have a patched version. And I suspect that does influence people at large. And it's something that these companies really only have themselves to blame for, right? Because, uh, you know, releasing unfinished games and then putting them on clearance six months later. Exactly. Uh, and we see that all over the place. It's constantly happening. Game prices just yeah. drop. The exception is stuff like uh, Call of Duty games don't really go on sale very often, for instance especially like the older ones. If you look on PC, for instance, like all the classic ones going back like 10 years, even you don't, you rarely see them go on sale. And when they do, it's not by that much. So they've managed to retain their value, but most games, Ubisoft stuff, especially is real guilty of this. They drop steeply really fast and are often very buggy at launch. So what's the incentive to buy right away for most people? Yeah. Not that much. Yeah. I think the, I mean, you've touched on the, like the, the cost side of it, but then there's also, and I totally agree, like um, it's the value proposition of it. But then you've got to like think why people are buying at launch. They want to experience the game 
in line with other people. They want to be part of the conversation. But if you can get over that, if you can just say, I'll wait two, three months, four, five months, maybe a year to play Cyberpunk, for example, you know, uh, then you're getting a way better, you know, end product. And there's not really much lost. Uh, I've certainly like taken that mentality myself where I just don't play well outside of work anyway, <laughs> anyway you know, I just have to play these games sometimes. But um, I've missed, uh, I've put off playing Cyberpunk because I know, you know, now it's way better and I can play and enjoy it now properly. I've put off playing another game, I think, recently, uh, Sonic Origins at launch. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because I knew, well, there's a, a box edition coming out and that'll probably have the updates and be fixed up. So, yeah, I do think it's... That, that's hilarious, People Tom. understand. The, the idea of, wait, it's like, well, these games have been out for like 30 years and, I'm, <laughs> you know, they come out, I'm just going to wait even further for the fixed version of these 30-year-old games. It just... Yeah. <laughs> it's, or go back to the Mega really Drive funny. version. That's really funny. <laughs> no, uh, it is. Uh, I do want to play that game, like just because. But it's a, uh, yeah. So it's a, it's about how much do you trust you put in developers these days to get it right day one. And to be honest, I think people have acclimatized to the situation that most games are released as almost uh, games as a service esque uh, products, and you just get rolling updates to even single player games, where. You know, previously it would have been just one and done. You release it on a disc or cartridge in the yeah. uh, 90s and then 2000s, and that'd be it. I will say uh, that's why I got to give kudos to something like God of War Ragnarok, even though it didn't, like, you know, blow our socks off in terms of visual quality, though it does look good. Uh, the game they released was extremely polished at launch. It just came out as solid. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. Uh, you know, that should be the norm, but sadly it is not. <laughs> I guess it really takes an example like Cyberpunk to put people off, though. Oh yeah, that's. But even then, that that game continues to sell. People watch all the videos. Yeah, because like, it, you know, some might say it's because it's fixed. You know. Yeah, I, got, it just. It, I'm I'm sure that it did a lot of damage to them, but it doesn't seem like the damage has stuck, and people are like mostly forgiving now. Like, wow, that was a mess. Now I can enjoy it. You know. <laughs> Yeah, it is a tricky one. I mean, in an ideal world, the games would just launch finished and proper, which was kind of like how things had to be in the past when you were like baking your code onto cartridges. Um, but right now, when you've got the opportunity to update your code as and when you please, it's just generated a completely different production uh, mindset, really. Hmm. Okay, let's move on to the next question. This one from Abby. Uh, with remakes like Dead Space PS5, uh, T-Loo PS5, Demon's Souls PS5, is this the best time to remake games with the lofty targets that developers had at the time of 7th Gen? It's been discussed before that developers had maybe too high of targets for simulation and dynamic lighting and shadows. Um, wow, this is an interesting one, right? I think the main issue with the 7th Gen is just that, yes, there was that ambition, but it was also really poor performance across the board across a whole bunch of games yeah um tom thoughts on this one are there any other seventh gen titles that we should be revisiting now we've actually got the hardware power to to deliver them maybe metal gear solid 4 that'd be good to to have Mm. (laughs) back in the uh, uh like updated today i'm trying to i'm struggling to think of games that and i'm sure there are games that were on the level of the last of us and demon souls because those two had 
not great performance. Uh, they were really pushing on. The Last of Us especially was pushing pretty hard that PS3. And so that was kind of justifiable in that sense to see it uh, updated. But what else delved like really low, like like 20 FPS or lower, but still had this high ambition? Oh, I mean, it's, think. I think the most obvious answer here is uh, it's Bullet Witch. If you remember Bullet that Witch. on the 360, uh, that game... It's one of the best games ever made. Okay, no, not really, but it is. It is interesting, <laughs> and uh, Bullet Witch does not run well. A lot of those early mm. 360 titles like that have extremely poor performance, uh, or a late game like uh, Dragon Guard Three, Dragon Dragoon Three. If you remember that, uh, I remember that's that. One yeah. of the worst performing games I've seen on the PS Triple. It is extremely bad, <laughs> and it's kind of locked to that system. Only uh, emulation can save it, basically. Mm. But, I think the issue know. here is it's not just about performance, is it? It's about lofty ambitions that yeah, yeah. But are actually being realized with the current generation. I mean, you look at Demon Souls on PS3, even if it ran at 30 frames per second, it still wouldn't be the same experience as Demon Souls on PS5, which was a proper, you know, similar to Dead Space, a total revamp, right? So I guess the question is of titles from the Xbox 360 and PS3 generations that would benefit from that that sort of revamp most of the ambitious games though pulled it off pretty well like naughty dog yeah, stuff I'd for say. instance the gears games like they really delivered good experiences back then unlike a lot of the majority of stuff so uh, so yeah I, I do think that the one last one is as i say metal gear solid 4 one of the the huge games that we've not really seen a, a revival of that, that, and that game that needs that needs a lot of work i would say yeah can, can we yeah. revamp the story and the cutscenes? Re yes re redo it all remake everything <laughs> and change Please. it hmm. man yeah. i don't know i think there is a um an argument for a revamp of certain franchises i mean we've been talking about it for years but assassin's creed you know if assassin's creed was made today with the same mindset with, that the original you know first couple of titles were were created uh, back in the Xbox 360 generation, that level of staggering ambition they had for that game back then moved over to the current generation. We wouldn't be talking about, um, uh, you know, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. We'd be talking about something which is very, very different, right? I don't think Ubisoft has the potential to create something like that anymore. You don't? They, I think they have the talent, but I think the leadership just isn't there for that type of thing. They're just there to they've completely shifted ubisoft used to be about sort of pushing boundaries and creating really interesting ideas and and realizing those ideas and that's just kind of faded you know like once we get into that generation everything just turned into i don't know it feels like it's almost exploiting the consumer base yeah. you know like we must get popular thing into things so that numbers go up and people play and buy product uh, rather than like here's a creative work that feels truly inspired like those original assassin's creed one is very flawed but it's it was super interesting conceptually very ambitious from a design and when was the last time ubisoft produced a game that had that kind of you know design to it you guys think of anything hmm. um not off the top of my head no <laughs> kind of i uh, watchdogs felt like their last attempt at something like that rainbow right. six siege was really I mean, interesting it is good i would say siege yeah. is pretty good but that's also back from like that era right it's, it's yeah a long time ago now mm. uh they've just been very rote just doing the same thing over and over and over again and 
yeah, it's I miss that. That's a shame. I guess what's been tricky is that, you know, that particular era, there was so much new IP going around with so much yeah. ambition being poured into it. It doesn't seem to be taking this time around. It's very difficult to find new games that are actually finding traction. So expensive to make, and if they fail, you're in deep trouble. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's move on to the next question. This one from Lucas Velichka. Uh, Hello, do you think this console generation will be longer than the typical seven years? Thank you for your brilliant content. Yes. So, <laughs> Sorry. Dive, dive straight in there, John. <laughs> you think it'll be longer than seven years? <laughs> Tom, go go for it. Actually, I, I think oh, so. I'm, but... <laughs> I'm I'm reasonably sure it'll be seven. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's going to be extended generation. Given how long it's taken to get started, it feels like if this was like a, a race and we were like going up the gears on a, a manual stick, it would have been. We're still in gear two. Uh, yeah, I like agree. Two years in, it's just yeah, it's taken a while, and we're not going to get to top gear anytime soon. I mean outside of a few exceptions maybe i'm the only one but i kind of feel like these consoles are like the ps4 pro pro and the xbox one double x you know what i mean where it's like this is just continuing last gen i i haven't really right. felt that much in terms of like real shift uh visually or like pushing to new levels outside of again just a handful of titles and I think we're bumping up more against just the realities of modern game development and just the sheer investment time. And it's it's venturing into a pretty scary place in that regard. So I think just getting something made, especially if you want that level of quality, it just takes a long time. It's not really feasible to do it in a way that how generations typically operated in the past. Right. I think there's two ways we can look at this. First of all, if we're going to stay... Um, wedded to the concept of a console generation, it probably will be a long one, um, simply because the concept of coming up with a new machine that is at least twice as powerful as the current one is proving to be exceptionally difficult, um, especially with the rising costs of semiconductors, etc. I think um, there's two ways you can look at this console generation, this one. Um, it seems to me that there are uh, key things that have been addressed. We now have a decent CPU, but even there we're finding limitations already. Uh, we have a decent GPU. Crucially, the storage issue has finally been addressed. Uh, these are all vectors that can develop developers can use to actually, you know, get a really decent generation of games out of the, out of this particular hardware. Um, but what if the console generation as we know it is over, right? What if it is just iterative upgrades every four or so years? You know, let's say, you know, we're talking about Xbox Series S and X. Let's say there's a new Xbox that comes along that, you know, gracefully retires the Series S and, you know, the X becomes the power, um, the, the power level for the entry level. Um, so you would be looking at more of a mobile phone style thing. It's quite interesting. I was thinking back to um, when I went to Microsoft to look at the Xbox uh, One X. And before I actually saw the hardware, I had a, a pitch from uh, Mike Hubara at the time. He was there. And uh, he was talking about um, the concepts that gamers, similar to owners of mobile phones, would want you know more immediate access to better technology. And um, that was kind of raising questions to me that 
well, maybe we are going to be moving away from console generations and we're going to be moving more into a iterative upgrade period. And then there was the whole cross-gen thing with uh, Xbox. They were completely open about it. Our games will be appearing on both systems. So I do wonder whether Microsoft are already laying the ground for this for this sort of more gradual transition as opposed to hard and fast generations, which was completely the opposite approach advocated by Mark Cerny and um, and the you know during the PlayStation Five uh, run up to launch, but in actual fact they kind of ended up following the same strategy. Uh, of you know mm-hmm. there was a, a couple of years of cross gen there. I don't know. It kind of um, feels like they changed strategy because early on there was a surprising amount of PS5 exclusive stuff, right? Yeah. Like you had mm-hmm. some of the launch games, you had Returnal, you had Ratchet, stuff like that. And then they kind of regressed back to cross-gen, which makes me think that they got cold feet and changed their mind. Possibly. possibly yeah. did, did they, though? Because, you know, Grand, uh, uh, Grand Turismo 7 true, was true. clearly a cross-gen title. Yeah. God of War was clearly a cross-gen title. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. I suspect yeah, no, I'm sure those were always intended. It's just interesting how they didn't seem to have much in the way of new console we, exclusives, basically. Yeah, yeah, we would have seen uh, the ripple effect of early project uh, startups, like uh, right when the console was launched. We'd have seen those kind of appear now if they did have something in, je- like in development, but they just haven't appeared. So it's like... Forspoken. Um, oh, Forspoken, yeah. Wait, wait. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay fair enough uh let's move on to the final question this one from johnny underscore 5a Uh, hey guys with this being your 101st episode only one question comes to mind if you could said if you could send one gaming thing to room 101 what would it be could be game hardware or something ephemeral like uh, stutter struggle uh tom have you had to think about this one what what thing drives you mad about gaming that you wish you could banish forever I mean, to go back to an earlier answer, it'd be Metal Gear Solid Four. Just oh, because. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. So I, just to yeah. be clear, you want to expunge it from all existence, but also have it remastered for. Uh, <laughs> oh. You can't have both. Huh? <laughs> if if you've if you've expunged it from existence, you know, if a Terminator was sent back in time to prevent the release of Metal Gear Solid Four. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to remaster it. I'm sorry. That's that is a a cat a flaw to the plan for sure. Yeah, <laughs> but it is just. I think it's the one game, I wish, I I remember playing it when it first came out. I was such a huge fan of MGS3, and I was. It's the biggest gaming disappointment I've ever had. Seriously, Whoa. by far. Wow, this is this huge harsh stuff. Uh, so John, bearing in mind last week where you kind of, you know, as I said, if there'd been a table present to flip, it would have been flipped. Yeah. Um, I can pretty much guess what your one would be. Well, so I have a couple thoughts on this. One, I would say I might start with horse armor, but more in a broader sense, I would say (laughs) microtransactions in general. I wish that would just go away forever. and Well, look, I was going to say games as a service, right? But, but, by removing MTX, yep. you've essentially yes. nullified the Ex- concept. Exactly. That's the goal. Exactly. Uh, so that would be the big one. It's all microtransactions expunged forever. The <laughs> other one I might say, just, just to rile people up a little bit for fun, uh, Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare. 
Wow. Wow. I'll tell you why. There's two reasons. First of all, its success had a profound impact on both single and multiplayer games. For years, uh, developers tried to make those extremely scripted, overly cinematic, not very interesting usually, uh, shooter campaigns. I think it made the shooter worse for about a decade, and it took a while to recover from it. And we're finally back. Uh, but that's the lesser evil. The big problem I have is multiplayer. People loved that. I get it. But for me personally, and just for me, I actually think it kind of destroyed multiplayer gaming forever. It changed the focus from just having fun. I mean, Rich and I and, and Alex, when we played Quake the other day, it reminded me how fun that could be. Uh, Call of Duty changed that by focusing on the numbers. And not not Mason's numbers, but, you know, the actual, like, weapon. you get weapon, you get unlock, number goes up. I like seeing bars get bigger. You know, just that kind of stuff. It completely changed the focus to just that. It's all these mm -hmm. micro games to it. The meta and uh i don't like any mm. of that and i never have and as a result after that i basically completely fell out of online multiplayer games and i have never been able to enjoy them again and it's all due to this stuff that was added due to the success of call of duty halo was ruined by call of duty because it felt like halo was my favorite multiplayer shooter i loved it so much but it felt like after call of duty took off they just went into this mode of chasing Call of Duty-ish things in Halo multiplayer forever. Uh, so I deeply resent that game for what it did to the industry. Even though wow. I think most people Even think I'm insane. Great game. It is, I would say by itself, the game is extremely well made. I don't want to knock Infinity War for it. They did an awesome job with that thing. It's more that its success had a very nasty ripple effect on the industry. That mm. kind of, uh, you know, I don't care for but again that's just just me personally i'm sure every like 90, 99% of people are probably throwing their hands up and being like you are a crazy man why are you saying this stuff but that's yeah. just that's that's kind of my thoughts i totally get it i mean <laughs> speaking as someone who's put hundreds of hours into call of duty for modern warfare i like uh there's the game and then there's the wider effect on the industry i will and, say uh, they made up for it a, a little bit with Titanfall 2, which is better than every Call of Duty game ever made, and <laughs> did not get the attention it deserved at the time. That that took the right... Call of Duty has some very good things. It's very snappy, responsive, but like you're, when you're fighting guys, especially in the campaign, it's all like distant enemies. There's no real... There's nothing interesting to the way the AI behaves. Player position... You know, there's no exploration or anything in the levels. You're just follow, following a corridor. The AI or the scripted things all happen for you. You can't open any doors ever. You can't do anything on your own. You're just watching a movie and kind of... It's the evolution of the FMV game. Uh, that's what it is. So, Titanfall 2 wow. is not that, though. It's much better. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, um, my... I've got two things to put in there. The first one is day one patches. Uh, this is entirely selfish. Basically, by my intention in uh, putting day one patches into Room 101 would be that um, mm -hmm. the games are actually finished, like, say, a month beforehand, and then uh, we can actually get about our work. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Without having to worry <laughs> about whether our work is going to be nullified in the next couple of days uh, with the arrival of a patch, uh, day one or otherwise. Um, the second thing I'd like to put in, well, it's no surprise, really, it's the Sega Master System, which... I knew it! <laughs> 
<laughs> which, as I've mentioned many times, is only the master of evil. And I'm not even going to give any further reasons beyond that. But Rich, uh, without the master <laughs> system, Sega wouldn't have felt the need to improve and strive to do better with the Mega Drive. Well, they could just get it right from day one. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> the PC engine Ouch. was out. The PC engine was out. That laid the template. Yeah, the PC engine's real good. <laughs> okay, that's it. That's the end of the show. If you enjoyed it, please do like, subscribe, <laughs> share, ring the bell for those. Uh, I'm actually going to say instant notifications now because I'm still... The Digital Foundry YouTube channel is still subscribed to that channel that I completely despise. And I'm still... I'm still getting instant notifications whenever oh, no. new content drops on that channel. <laughs> so, yes, please do like, subscribe, share, and indeed ring the bell for instant notifications whenever new Digital Foundry content drops and the DF support programs. Just a joy for all of us and um, amazing things happening there. And, of course, you can uh, get early access to this show and indeed contribute to it as part of the support program. So, yeah, please do think about that. But that's all from us this week. Thanks for watching. <laughs>